children. They're trying to make up their mind uh, who they should listen to. It's comical to watch, but it reveals an experience that is common to all human beings. And that is the experience of moral conflict. Everyone can identify with that cartoon because everyone experiences moral conflict. Uh, Sometimes it's quite minor. For example, do I stay up late eating ice cream and watching this very long and unedifying film? Or do I get my head down early so that I'm fresh and ready for that big day at work tomorrow? Uh, Sometimes it's very serious. For example, someone uh, who is considering having an affair. Uh, They might remember the commitment they've made to their spouse. Uh, They might think about the impact it would have on their spouse and their children. Uh, They might feel that they should work more at the marriage. They know it would be wrong. But then on the other hand, they think, yeah, but we've not been getting on. Uh, my, my spouse doesn't give me much attention. I, I don't know whether I can live a lie. And then added to that side of the argument might be these uh, very strong uh, feelings of lust or attraction to another person. There's a conflict. There's a moral decision to be made. We might not be able to identify with those particular examples, but we can all identify with moral conflict. That's when we have a strong desire to do something that we know is wrong. Uh, We might try to justify it to ourselves, but deep down, we know it would be wrong. Everyone has some experience of this, uh, because we're all made in the image of God. We have an inherent sense of right and wrong. Our moral compass is broken. We've been corrupted. Nevertheless, we all experience moral conflict. That's every human being. But when we give our lives to Christ... A different kind of conflict, a a different kind of battle ensues. One that is far more intense. And that might surprise us, especially when we think about some of the language that's used uh, around conversion. New life, new creation, being moved from darkness to light and so on. And it's true, when we give our lives to Jesus, we will be changed. Uh, Some of that change might happen instantly. Uh, Some will occur gradually over a period of time, remembering, of course, uh, that we'll never be perfect until we meet Jesus face to face. But even with all that change, the battle within intensifies. Why? Well, let's look specifically at the Christian conflict. Paul describes two modes of being, the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. In verse 16, we read, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does Paul mean by the flesh? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that the world is in a mess because human beings have rebelled against God. Our default position is rebellion. And that explains why human beings are growing in knowledge, but not in wisdom. Our default position is the way of the flesh, a way that is contrary to God's will and desire. So when Paul talks about the desires or the lusts of the flesh, uh, he doesn't just mean those things that affect our bodies. If we hear a phrase like the lusts of the flesh, we all automatically think of uh, sexual sin. Uh, but actually what Paul has in mind is the whole range of human sin and rebellion. So the flesh is what we are by nature. It's our inheritance. And we might say, well, if this is the way that we've been wired, then it's really not our fault. 
but we are held responsible for our sin and wrongdoing. And there are two things to consider. Uh, the first is our human nature, and with it, the desires of the flesh. And that is given to us. We receive our human nature at birth. We can't do anything about it. But the second thing is our willingness to act upon that nature. And for that, we are wholly responsible. But the truth is, without Jesus, we can never find our way to God. Let me give you an example, an illustration. Have you ever tried to uh, see some, have you ever, uh, sorry, seen someone trying to walk in a straight line with a blindfold on? Uh, like a party game or something, they can't do it. They might be able to go in a straight line for a few meters, maybe 20 or 30 meters, but eventually they're going to veer off course. And our sinful nature, our flesh nature, acts like a blindfold uh, in the spiritual sense. Our default position is to veer away from God. If our mode of being is the way of the flesh, we will go off course. However, someone who has a blindfold on and attempts to walk in a straight line They don't start walking around in small circles and or or go back in the opposite direction. Uh, You know, you've got someone there in front of you. uh, You put a blindfold on them. You say, right, I want you to walk in a straight line, go in that direction. uh, And, you know, they may be able to do that for a short way. Uh, But if you say walk in a straight line and they walk in the, they turn 180 and go off in the opposite direction. Well, you know, they've done that deliberately they've made a conscious decision to do that and I guess that illustrates two ways that sin can impact our lives Uh, we can actively rebel that is to say uh, we don't even attempt to walk in a straight line we just give in to the desires of the flesh even though we may know that it's wrong or we can attempt to walk in a straight line but because human nature is sinful we've got this metaphorical blindfold on we will veer off and the further we we try and walk with a blindfold on the further we'll go off course and uh, you know we will eventually be going in completely the wrong direction so whether we deliberately rebel or whether we go through life trying to be a good person either way we'll end up way off track Either our sins will be blatantly obvious, as with someone who just deliberately rebels, or our sins will be more subtle, maybe harder to spot for the outsider, but actually no less deadly. We have inherited the way of the flesh as our mode of being, which means we cannot find our way to God without Jesus. So what are the desires of the flesh that Paul talks about? Well, Paul gives us a list in verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. That's quite a list, isn't it? Now, that's a pretty broad list, but it's not even a complete list because Paul ends by saying, and the like. Uh, In other words, there's much more that we could add to this list. Now, sometimes the list gets broken down so that every desire of the flesh is scrutinized, examined, and explained. But I don't think we need to do that because Paul is saying that the desires of the flesh are all those things that we might have a desire to do, but are in fact evil. They're wrong. Uh, We've already seen that human beings have a natural inclination towards evil. And that's what Paul means when he says the desires of the flesh. But our culture embraces two prevalent lies that directly contradict this teaching. And the first goes like this. People are basically good and they have to learn to be bad. 
Um, you could go to any kindy in the country and observe for an hour, and uh, you might uh, see, see a, a different picture. But uh, if that were true, by now, humanity would be making great strides towards eradicating greed, envy, selfishness, violence, pride, and all the rest of it. We're not making great strides to eradicating those things. And the second lie, uh, and this has become the mantra of our time, is do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever your heart tells you to do. Uh, uh, follow your heart say the talk show hosts and the wise friends and everyone else who fails to see that our hearts are actually corrupt. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And in our passage today, verse 17, Paul says, You are not to do whatever you want. We can't just follow the desires of our heart because often the things that we want are in direct opposition to God's spirit. Follow your heart is not good advice. Of course, our heart's you know, desire uh, may be aligned with what God wants for our life. And the more we walk in step with the spirit, the more that will be the case. Uh, but that is not a general rule, and it's a terrible guiding principle. It only sounds sensible, follow your heart, because it's what we want to hear. What it usually means in practice is very selfish decision-making, and that can have devastating consequences for our friendships, for our marriages. If our decision-making is based upon uh, always what is best for us, as if we are the center of the universe, what is convenient for us, uh, what is going to make us happy, uh, what is the best scenario for us personally, you know, this has a terrible knock-on effect uh, for the unborn, for the elderly and how we care for them. It affects every facet of human life and every kind of human relationship. Following one's heart is devastating for our relationship with God, and it's devastating for our relationship with other people. And the irony is our heart's desire is not the thing that's going to bring us contentment or joy or peace. Uh, that, that is our heart's desire when we're in that mode of walking uh, in the flesh. It's the opposite. We just don't realize it. So that's the way of the flesh. What about the way of the spirit? So before we come to Christ, uh, the moral conflict, the inner battle is not very fierce. The desires of the flesh are perhaps in some kind of conflict with our innate sense of right and wrong, but we can so easily deceive ourselves. We can silence uh, that part of us that retains some vestige of the image of God. But when we come to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit actually comes to live within us. And the way of the Spirit is diametrically opposed to the way of the flesh. So when we're filled with the Spirit, this war begins. And Paul does describe it as a war in Romans 7, this war between the flesh and the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals the extent of our sin and our brokenness. Uh, we don't always see it uh, before we come to Christ, but the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. We, we see ourselves as we really are, and it can be disconcerting. It can be extremely uncomfortable. But we also know that in Christ, we will have the victory. In Christ, we will have the victory. And this is so important 
Because when we read something like Romans 7, where Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And again, he says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We could read this and say, well, that sounds pretty depressing. Is that all that Christianity has to offer, an experience of continuous defeat? Well, no, it's not. We won't be perfect this side of the grave, it's true, but we will be changed. Paul says that we are being transformed into the Lord's image with ever-increasing glory. That, That means we are becoming more like Jesus, or at least we can do. We can become more like Jesus if we crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Let me explain. Paul, firstly, Paul says we must crucify the flesh. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about taking up our cross. Uh, Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. To carry one's cross is a vivid image of self-denial. But it's not just a case of carrying our cross. We've got to ensure that the execution takes place. As one commentator put it, we are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. It is a graphic image of repentance. Repentance uh, is truly turning away from our old way of life, turning away from the way of the flesh, not just by changing our lifestyle, but by changing our hearts. Uh, When I was about 15, uh, a member of our family who is very well respected, uh, who I really got on with, he said something that I'll never forget. And I found it quite shocking. Um, and that's why it stuck in my mind. He told me uh, that his only regret was that he hadn't slept with more women when he was a younger man. So outwardly, he was leading a more moral life. As far as I know, he was always faithful to his wife. He's a good family man. But there was no repentance for the life that he'd lived before, no sense of regret. In fact, his only regret was that he hadn't sinned even more. Repentance isn't just about the way we live our lives. It's about what's going on in our hearts. We have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And crucifixion was not normally a quick death. People took a long time to die, which is why it was such an effective form of execution. It was a gradual death. And when we crucify the flesh, it takes a long time to die. So every day we've got to make sure that the flesh stays nailed to the cross. Repentance isn't something that we do once. It's something that we have to live out every day of our lives. So we crucify the flesh and then we walk by the Spirit. And there are two parts to this. We walk by the Spirit, but we're also led by the Spirit. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If our sinful nature is like a blindfold that prevents us from walking in a straight line, an impediment that prevents us from coming close to God, then the Holy Spirit is the absolute opposite of that. The Holy Spirit will guide us into a new way of being towards God rather than away from him. But it's not automatic. 
It takes effort on our part. Imagine you hired a guide to take you to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, and the guide starts leading off, and you just sit down on your pack. You're obviously not going to get very far unless you get back up on your feet and start following that guide. Hiring a guide would not re- relieve you of the physical effort of walking up the mountain. The guide would take you in the right direction, and the guide would set the pace. You wouldn't go rushing ahead of the guide. You wouldn't lag behind. You'd walk in step with that guide in order to get to where you wanted to go. And that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. We walk with the Spirit, and we walk at the Spirit's pace. For example, we might think that we're ready to engage in a certain kind of ministry, and the Holy Spirit knows that we need more preparation. Or it could be the opposite. We don't feel ready, but the Holy Spirit knows that we are. We need to go at the Spirit's pace. We walk in step with the Spirit. We have to cooperate with the Spirit. But we can only do that when we've crucified the flesh, when we've truly repented, and when we continue to live out that attitude of repentance. Uh, A part of that walking, part of that effort, is drawing near to God. If you were here on Ash Wednesday, uh, we were looking at at, uh, the book of James, and where, where it says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Uh, Of course, if we make no effort to come near to God, then we won't be walking by the Spirit. We've got to work at that relationship. Following Jesus means that we live under the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But that requires a conscious act of the will on our part. We've got to accept that guidance. We've got to submit to that guidance. So what's the evidence that we've made this choice? Uh, how can we know that we are walking in step with the Spirit? Well, if I, I were back in uh, England and I went to an orchard in the winter when there's no leaves or fruit on the trees, uh, personally, I would struggle to know what kind of trees I was looking at. Uh, Helen Irwin, I'm sure, would be able to help me out and tell me exactly what they were, uh, but I wouldn't have a clue. But if I went to that same orchard in the summer when there's leaves and fruit on the branches, I'd be able to see clearly what kind of trees they were. Uh, You don't have to be much of a horticulturalist to know the difference between an apple and a pear. It's obvious. It's obvious. So Paul tells us that if someone is walking in step with the Spirit, here is the kind of fruit that you would expect to see growing in their lives. Remember, fruit takes time to grow. It doesn't just appear overnight. It takes time, but this is the kind of fruit we'd expect to see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wouldn't we all like to see more of those things in our lives? And what a contrast between the fruits of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. If you, if you can, go back uh, to Galatians 5 in your own time and compare, contrast the, f- the, the desires of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit. It really is a difference between night and day. And you know, many Christians experience this moral conflict. They feel this inner battle, and they feel perturbed. They say, well, why am I struggling so much? Why is this so hard? Why is it such a battle? But if you feel this conflict... Rejoice. Rejoice. Because it means the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. I'd be much more worried about someone who professed to be a Christian and said, well, you know, I don't really feel like there's much of a battle. You know, I'm, I'm leading a pretty good life. 
Uh, no one's perfect, but I don't think there's that much that needs to change. I'd be much more concerned about someone who was saying or thinking uh, that. The Christian life is one of conflict. It's a battle. But if we walk in step with the Spirit, we are on the road to victory. And sometimes we will experience setbacks. Uh, We'll get out of step with the Spirit or maybe give in to the desires of the flesh. We're not perfect. We are being changed, but it's a process, isn't it? And I think if we look at our own life, we can all see that it's a process. So what do we do when our sinful nature rears its ugly head? Well, it's a bit like learning to ride a horse. If you fall off, you don't stay on the ground rolling around in the mud and the manure. You get straight back on the horse and you make every effort to stay there. If we fall down, we get back up and we keep walking in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, as Christians, aware that there is a spiritual battle that we can feel uh, even within our innermost being. We recognize that we have desires that are wrong, and we um, recognize that our human nature uh, is, is, is a powerful force, but also uh, we know that you have filled us with your Spirit. We know that your spirit is more powerful and that if we make that conscious decision to walk in step with your spirit, then more and more we'll be able to turn away from the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature, and turn towards you and see that fruit growing in our lives. And we pray, Father, not just as individuals, but as a church, we'll see the fruits of the spirit growing uh, within our community. Help us, Father, to to be motivated to want to walk in step with your Spirit, to seek you out each day and to see where it is that you are leading us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.